have you along with us. I'm Matthew Arnold, uh, your host for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Having a little trouble with the uh, with the image right now, so uh, hopefully the audio is getting to you. Coming to you today from our Orange County Command Post here uh, behind the Orange Curtain, Castle uh, Arnoldus, the uh, Hermitage of uh, VMPR. Uh, great to have you with us, and uh, I want to just mention a couple of things. Got a lot to cover today. There is a uh, a tempest in a teapot raging in Catholic circles, traditional Catholic circles, especially today. Been around for a while. It's getting more attention currently. And that is the rather strange claim that Jorge Bergoglio, uh, a.k.a. Pope Francis, is not really the pope at all, but that Joseph Ratzinger, uh, a.k.a. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, still holds the office of the papacy. Now, it is sometimes called Benevacantism because its reasoning is similar to the opinions of the, of the set of vacantists. And uh, if these notions and terms are unfamiliar to you, then uh, I will give you a crash course today and uh, also put in my two cents. Uh, but first, as always, we're going to go to the readings from the Extraordinary Form Mass of this past Sunday, which was Sexagesima Sunday, uh, the second Sunday of the pre-Lenten season of Septuagesima, as we talked about last week. And going to be reading the Gospel from Luke 8, verses 14 through 15, uh, the well-known parable of the sower, and taking our translation, as per usual, from the New Catholic Bible. When a large crowd gathered together, as people from every town flocked to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path and was trampled upon, and the birds of the sky ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. And some fell onto good soil, and when it grew, it produced a crop of a hundredfold. After saying this, he cried out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, To you has been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but for others they are made known in parables, so that looking they may not see and hearing they may not understand. The meaning of the parable is this. The seed of the w is the word of God. The seed on the path represents those who hear. But then the devil comes and carries off the word from their hearts so that they may not come to believe and be saved. Those on rock are the ones who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a short while, but in time of trial they fall away. That which has fallen among thorns are those who have heard, but as long as they go along, they are choked by the concerns and riches and pleasures of life, and they fail to produce mature fruit. But that which is on rich soil are the ones who, when they have heard the word with a good and upright heart, keep it and yield a harvest through their perseverance. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So we have here the different ways of receiving the word of God. Uh, it's a parable, of course, so it's an allegorical story where everything in the story represents uh, some greater reality. The sower uh, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who, through the apostles and their successors, proclaims to us the word of God. The field is the heart of man, for which the divine seed is uh, destined. And the chief lesson contained in the parable is that the effect of God's word upon the soul depends entirely on the preparation and disposition of the one who hears it. 
just as the fruitfulness of a natural seed depends on the cultivation and quality of the earth in which it is sown. So the three cases mentioned in which the seed brought forth no fruit point out the chief obstacles, the, the hindrances which man puts in the way of the efficacy of God's word. So the first, uh, first class, if you will, are those in whom there is a lack of a good will to receive God's word with faith. They hear it, uh, but they don't open their hearts to it because Satan and his human agents have succeeded either by scorn or prejudice or, or false explanations, and so setting them against everything supernatural that they simply refuse to believe. And you can take, for example, the Pharisees in our Lord's time, and of course the, the, the modernists, the so-called enlightened people of the present day. Uh, the second class have a good will and are religious-minded, but they're shallow and, and they're weak in character. So they receive the word of God eagerly, but their faith doesn't penetrate to the depths of their heart and their will. It, it lacks firmness and steadfastness, and so they fall away as soon as trials or persecution put their faith to the test. Right? So remember the Israelites in the desert, for example. And then the third class are those who have faith and hold fast to it, but don't live up to it, right? being quite absorbed in the things of this world. So they give themselves up to what's called the concupiscence of the eyes and the concupiscence of the flesh and pride of life, and therefore bring, no, uh, bring forth no fruits that are worthy of faith. So they have faith, but, it, but it's dead. And then the, the three principal enemies of the faith um, and the life of faith are, therefore, according to this parable, the devil and his allies, who seek to deprive us of the willingness to believe, weakness of heart and darkness of will, which the flesh, that's our, uh, you know, um, just our fallen nature, and then the three evil passions that govern the world that we just mentioned, the concupiscence of the eyes of the flesh and the pride of life. <clears throat> so the word of God only bears fruit in those who not only accept it willingly, but cherish it in their heart, you know, and, and have their hearts purified by faith, and then patiently and perseveringly live up to that faith. So religion and grace, therefore, are not affairs um, only of reason, but of heart and will. Uh, in fact, a comprehensive understanding of religion isn't necessary or even sufficient uh, for salvation or to enable us to lead a life according to faith. I mean, you can have a PhD in theology and still go to hell. What's indispensable is a good heart, being willing to receive what is great and what is supernatural. And, and we can all do that. That's why uh, Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, I quote this all the time, he said, no soul can be lost by following the simple and well-beaten path of ordinary devotion and prayer. You know, at Mass, before the reading of the Gospel, we all make the sign of the cross on our, our forehead and our lips and our heart. And that very action is itself a prayer. And the intention of that prayer is that God's Word would be ever in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips. And you can see by this parable how necessary it is that your heart should be well prepared for receiving the Word of God. And so I ask myself, have I always had a desire to hear God's Word? Have I kept what I've heard in my heart and then and, and made corresponding resolutions, you know, and then you know, acted on them? Have I ever considered religious instruction boring or tedious? And how about you? I mean, 
To which of these four classes that our Lord describes in that parable do you think you belong? You know, at Mass, when you make those little signs of the cross on your forehead, lips, and heart, you should pray to the Holy Spirit to help you embrace the gospel, to listen to the gospel, and then listen attentively to Father's homily with the resolve to take to heart and to carry out what you hear. You know, an old priest friend of mine used to call it getting a word out. He said, you know, to listen attentively to the readings, the prayers, the homily, even the, even the uh, hymns, and just look for what God has to tell you personally in every Mass. And I tell you, it never ceases to amaze me that after years of attending Holy Mass and hearing the same readings over and over again, that there's always some new insight, always some uh, a new application for those familiar words in my changing circumstances. And, you know, when Jesus first told the parable of the sower, he said to his disciples, to you has been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but for others they are made known in parables, so that looking they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Those, those last words are a quote from the prophet Isaiah, and, and they're more fully quoted in Matthew's gospel. But, but that word mysteries, which is sometimes translated as secrets, that's used in the book of Daniel and the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, to designate a divine plan or a decree affecting the course of history that can only be known when it's been revealed, right? And in this case, the secret or mystery is that the kingdom of God is already present in the ministry of Jesus that the kingdom of God is present now here on earth among us, amongst the body of Christ in the church, right? And, and Jesus' point, at that moment, only the disciples were sensitive to the riches of the gospel. Uh, the other people that are hearing it don't, don't yet have a heart freed from, from sin. They're not, they're not prepared to hear and understand. And so in the meditation of the early Christian communities, the parable of the sower became an object lesson for the believer, that in daily life, both in the trials and the pleasures of life, the world and the flesh and the devil are an obstacle to the gospel. Jesus knows this, uh, but he also knows what we're capable of with the help of his grace. So he puts us on guard, but he also calls us to make a persevering effort to let our life be transformed by his words. And that's no nonsense. Okay, at the top of the show, I mentioned that there is a, a tempest in a teapot that is raging in the church, especially in Catholic circles, and it's been around for, for a while. It is the rather odd hypothesis that Jorge Bergoglio is not Pope, but that Joseph Ratzinger still is. Uh, and it started with some articles and then online comments, and then it grew into this kind of complicated proposition, which... I think if you're, you know, kind of a believing Catholic and a rational human being is going to strike you as nonsense. However, that this notion is currently being embraced by some people that I know and respect, including Dr. Ed Mazza and Mr. Patrick Coffin. So I feel like I can no longer just dismiss it out of hand. But we're going to take the time today to comment on it. And I'll put in my two cents and see what's going on here. Okay, stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages.
Hey, welcome back. I see we got our, our video up. So uh, thank you to our crack technical staff for taking care of that. I'm afraid that the Skype uh, just wouldn't load the picture before the uh, first segment began, but it's up and running now. So thanks for that. Uh, okay. And before the break, I was mentioning that we we're going to talk about uh, this kind of odd hypothesis that's gaining some traction right now that, um, that Jorge Bergoglio is not really the Pope, uh, that he is in fact an anti-Pope, that uh, the, the true Pope is still Benedict the 16th, and we'll give you the reasons for that. I'm going to comment on it. As I, as I said before the break, I've, I've been ignoring this largely, except for the fact that uh, some people now that, um, that I know and respect are, are starting to embrace this idea, so I don't feel like I can just dismiss it. I let it go without comment. And uh, I actually went on the Terry and Jesse show last week and talked about this, uh, but it was just one segment. You know, wanted to take a little more time, go into a little more detail. And, and I want to start by saying that I'm not attacking anyone personally. Okay, I'm, I'm only doing uh, what I always do here, which is try and clear up confusion. In the words of St. Augustine, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And it is a kind of big Byzantine tapestry, so I'm going to confine myself just to some of the main assertions of the position, which some people have called benevacantism. And I don't, to be honest, I don't know the, who coined that term, but it's a play on the word sedevacantism, which of course means the seat is empty, uh, the seat being the chair of Peter. Sedevacante is the term used to describe the period from the death or resignation of one pope and the election of his successor, when, when the chair is in fact literally empty. But sedevacantism is the position of a number of Catholics who believe that the post-conciliar church has officially fallen into heresy, and consequently there hasn't been a valid pope since John the 23rd, or maybe Pius the 12th. And we will explore arguments for that position also later in the program. But, but for now, <clears throat> how is it that some folks have convinced themselves that Benedict XVI is still a pope, and that Pope Francis is an anti-pope? Well, like any conspiracy theory, Benevacantism is a, is a precarious house of cards built from many-sided claims and contentions. But the foundational claim is that Pope Benedict did not really resign. Oh, he may have intended to resign, but his resignation suffers from a defect of form. And, and apparently this stems from the English translation of his Declaratio of 11 February 2013, where uh, the Beneficantists say that it seems that he makes a distinction between the ministry of the Bishop of Rome and the Petrine office, claiming to renounce the latter and not the former. And, of course, this is a canonical argument uh, that contends that Benedict XVI failed to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, so to speak, that are necessary for his valid resignation. Therefore, he's still Pope. Well, is this possible? Well, for one thing, the English translation is not the official version of the Declaration of Recognition, Resignation. So it may be that the alleged ambiguity doesn't exist at all in, in the official version. But I think we should begin with the Pope, and that's any Pope's, relationship to canon law. I'm sure we can all agree that Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger was legitimately elected to the papacy and therefore had all the powers and privileges appertaining thereto. So as a valid pope, his relation to canon law is that of supreme legislator. And while a pope is bound certainly by the doctrines of the church, by the deposit of faith, he can modify or potentially even abolish canon law at his good pleasure. 
Also, again, according to canon law, uh, it's canon 333, there is neither appeal nor recourse against a judgment or a decree of the Roman pontiff. And canon 1404, the first C is judged by no one. So with that understanding, how does canon law regulate the resignation of a pope? Well, according to canon 332, and I'm quoting, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and properly manifested, but not that it is accepted by anyone. So, okay, let's break that down. Pope's resignation must be properly manifested. Now, what does that mean? Is it talking about a certain formula that he has to recite? No, manifest. His, his resignation must be manifest. That means apparent or discernible, okay, obvious. In other words, it must be made in open and not in secret. Well, Benedict XVI made a public announcement of his intention to resign and the date it would go into effect, and then he published a declaration to that effect. So, properly manifested, check. The other requisite is that the resignation is made freely. And this is the next plank in the beneficantist platform, that, that Benedict XVI was, was being blackmailed or otherwise coerced to resign, that he didn't do it of his own free will. Now, that claim, of course, is complete conjecture. And it was refuted by Benedict XVI himself on more than one occasion. In, in June of 2018, the Pope Emeritus said, the only condition for the validity of my resignation is the complete freedom of my decision. Speculation regarding its validity is simply absurd. Now, of course, the Benedictist would say, well, that's exactly what a blackmailed pope would say. But then in an interview of March of 2021, he stated again, it was a difficult decision, but I made it in full awareness. And I think I did the right thing. Some of my friends who are a bit fanatical are still angry and they didn't want to accept my choice. They don't want to believe it was a conscious choice, but my conscience is clear. So unless you're calling Benedict XVI a liar, then he resigned and he resigned of his own free will. Therefore, when Pope Benedict freely manifested his will to resign the papacy, as supreme legislator, no alleged defect of form could impede that resignation. And there it is. He resigned, whether you like it or not. And as stated in Canon 332, his valid resignation doesn't need to be accepted by anyone. And that includes Catholic bloggers and podcasters. Consequently, back in the real world, Benedict's resignation was recognized as a fait accompli by the College of Cardinals, who duly elected Jorge Bergoglio as his successor. Okay, so listen. The conclave of 2013 elected Jorge Bergoglio, who took the name Francis. The worldwide episcopate, the overwhelming majority of the Catholic faithful, the, the entirety of the non-Catholic world, for that matter, all recognized Pope Francis as supreme pontiff. They held a conclave. He was elected. Therefore, he is the pope. And this is the important point. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise, or we could never be sure if we really had a pope or not. The traditional declaration, Abemus Papem, would be rendered meaningless. So going back to canon law, canon 332, paragraph 1, says, The Roman pontiff obtains full and supreme power in the church by his acceptance of legitimate election together with episcopal consecration. 
the same supreme power that made Benedict XVI's resignation valid was obtained by Francis as his legitimate successor. And this is the reality, no matter how painful it may be to some people. Which brings us to number three on the Benevacantist hit parade, the assertion that the election of Jorge Bergoglio was illegitimate. And the so-called evidence for this claim rests largely on a biography of Cardinal uh, Godfrey Daniels, who was a member of the so-called St. Gallen Group, also known as the St. Gallen Mafia. Right? This was an informal group, and I say was past tense because it no longer exists, <clears throat> but it was an informal group of high-ranking and like-minded liberal progressive bishops and cardinals who would meet annually in or near St. Gallen, Switzerland, hence the St. Gallen Group. And they met to, to exchange ideas about issues in the church or to come up with, uh, you know, secret plans, if you prefer. Now, the other members of the group included Cardinals um, Carlo Montini, who was Cardinal of Milan, Walter Casper, uh, Cormac Murphy O'Connor, writer, a rather irregular rogues gallery of, of progressive prelates. And, and the Benevacantists allege that this group influenced the election of Jorge Bergoglio as pope. And since any kind of, of campaigning is forbidden in papal conclaves and papal elections, uh, the penalty per John Paul II being excommunication, right? Therefore, Bergoglio is not pope, right? Because, because they, they campaign for him. They, they influence the election. Well, as it turns out, the actual assertion of influence made by the uh, former member of the St. Gallen group uh, was not in the context of the 2013 papal election, but the conclave of 2005 and the election of Cardinal Ratzinger as Pope. Um, author and Vatican expert Paul Batty commented about it in an interview. He said, I knew that from a very reliable source who had told me that the cardinals belonging to the St. Gallen group were trying to have a Jesuit cardinal, uh, Carlo Mar Martini, elected, the popular archbishop from Milan. It is true also Cardinal Bergoglio from Buenos Aires was considered Papa Bile, and that that's, means a man who could potentially be elected pope, but wasn't mentioned in that context. And I learned that they tried everything to prevent the election of Joseph Ratzinger. So the first point is that the election that was supposedly influenced by the St. Gallen group was that of the conclave of 2005. You know, Jorge Bergoglio did not participate in that conclave because he wasn't yet a cardinal. And according to Mr. Batty, was not mentioned in the context of influencing the election. Furthermore, if the St. Gallen group really did try to influence that election, well, he certainly failed because Ratzinger was elected pope. So, so where did the idea come about regarding the alleged chicanery in the election of Francis? Well, it's yet another Vatican expert, uh, himself a progressive Catholic. Um, the German journalist Julius Müller-Meiningen, who made the claim that, quote, the St. Gallen group had an essential influence on the preparation of the election of Bergoglio, that they set upon the choice of Bergoglio in order to realize their own agenda in the conclave of 2005, as well at the, as at the election of 2013. In other words, they allegedly chose Bergoglio back in 2005 to become the successor of Ratzinger. So there it is. But, you know, German journalists and, and, you know, bloggers and podcasters aside, there has never been any actual evidence produced or formal accusations made or, or any official proceedings or investigations or anything to lend credence to these allegations. 
However, you know, the fact that the surviving St. Gallen group bishops are, you know, liberal progressives and they've been highly supportive of Pope Francis's more egregious policies, you know, recognizing homosexual unions or communion for the divorced and remarried, among other things. Um, that's enough for some folks to regard them as capable of these excommunicable backroom dealings. And maybe they are, but it doesn't prove anything. Like Sidivacantism, the arguments for Benevigantism devolve into a hopeless morass of he said, she said, and private judgment. You know, but the connection, the connection between Sidivacantism and Benevigantism doesn't end there. You know, after the supposed defective resignation of Benedict XVI, or the allegedly invalid election of, of Bergoglio, the argument becomes a matter of Francis's more egregious actions and statements and policies as Pope, which the Beneficantists would trot out as proof of his obvious invalidity. Surely no real Pope would say or do the things that Francis has done, at which point we encounter those kind of worn-out arguments of Sedificantism, which we'll look at in just a minute when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back. Talking about Benevacantism, this idea that... Um, that somehow Pope Benedict is still Pope and Pope Francis uh, was not, and you know, or is not. And I have to say one thing. I mean, I have a certain sympathy for the Benedictists, uh, if not for their position. I mean, the pontificate of Pope Francis has been something of a train wreck for the church. And, and admittedly, there is confusion surrounding the whole affair. I remember back in uh, February of 2013, I was doing a series of talks uh, for the Knights of Columbus uh, out in San Bernardino. And uh, this topic, of course, came up because that was the big news of the day. And I remember we were speculating on what Benedict's title would be after his resignation. And uh, the uh, kind of common consensus at the time was that they would have called him Pope Emeritus of Rome, that he would, or Bishop rather, Bishop Emeritus of Rome. Uh, since he was no longer the Pope. And uh, and that, you know, was consistent with what had happened in a couple of times in history that um, that other popes had resigned, that they went back to their to their former titles. And, um, you know, and, and it's to be Bishop Emeritus of the diocese where you retire is the typical way to treat a, a retiring or resigning bishop. And I remember that the chaplain for the Knights out there told me that um, that his contacts in Rome said that they had settled on Pope Emeritus. And I said, oh, well, surely not. You know, that's, that's unprecedented. That, that's never been done. They, they, you know, they wouldn't make a decision like that. It's going to create confusion. Well, of course, I was wrong. Um, I mean, I was wrong about their choice. Pope Emeritus is unprecedented. And in my opinion, it's an unfortunate choice of, of title because, for one thing, uh, it causes some people to assume that there are two popes. <laughs> you know, and in my humble opinion, that's reason enough not to have done it. And, and I think Benedict XVI himself further clouded the issue by some of his own remarks. Like in his last general audience in, in February of 2013, he spoke of resigning, quote, the active exercise of the Petrine office, or the Petrine ministry, rather, but then declared that he would, quote, remain, so to speak, within the enclosure of St. Peter. And I don't exactly know what that means, you know. And again, in my opinion, that was rather imprudent. 
pardon me. <laughs> However, you know, my opinion and 10 bucks will get you a Big Mac fries and a Coke. And, and frankly, that also applies to the opinions of our Pope Emeritus as well. He sometimes expresses himself um, rather ambiguously. Sometimes it's difficult to follow his, his thought, especially after it's been translated into other languages. And, but, but, you know, regardless of his opinions or, or how cryptically he expresses them, the fact remains that he resigned, they held a new conclave, they elected a new pope, and that's Jorge Bergoglio, who is now Pope Francis. Benedict himself has, has said as much, and he's insisted there's only one pope. Now, in any event, it's only a matter of time before the whole thing is going to be rendered moot by Benedict's uh, inevitable demise. He's 94 years old, and he's most certainly not going to live forever. So what happens then? Right? What happens then? You know, uh, our Vedavacantus brethren are aware of this. They must be. I mean, like I say, Bennett's 16, he's 94. If his resignation was really flawed and Pope Francis' election was really invalid and Jorge Bergoglio was really an anti-pope, then upon the death of Benedict XVI, the Benedictists will simply become garden variety set of Acantists. And since that day is coming, I think I'd like to take this opportunity to look a little at the claims of set of Acantism. Right? You've probably heard of that. You may know it's a, a theory that rests on the notion that a pope who is a manifest heretic thereby automatically loses the papal dignity, falls from his office. The set of Acantists contend that the many regrettable actions of, of uh, Pope Francis expose him precisely as a manifest heretic who has fallen uh, consequently from the papacy, and therefore it is legitimate to you know, set up an independent apostolate over and against his magisterium, uh, to refuse communion with the bishops or other local ordinaries who are communion in communion with him, and to offer mass without praying for him in the canon. Now, for, let's... let's Look at the problem with this position. First, Francis is the duly elected pope, okay? With the uh, just like the Benedictist position, with with the obvious exception of the set of Acantists themselves, virtually everyone, the entire episcopate, the Catholic faithful, the, the whole non-Catholic world, everybody recognizes him as the pope. And second, the contention that Pope Francis embracing formal heresy is a matter of opinion. Not everybody agrees that Pope Francis is a manifest heretic. To say so is a matter of private judgment, which is binding on no one, most certainly not the Pope. And third, and I think most importantly, the notion that a heretic Pope automatically loses his office is not a doctrine of the Church. It is rather one theological opinion among several that were posited by St. Robert Bellarmine in his work to Romano Pontifice. He, he put forth a half a dozen uh, um, theories regarding what would happen if a pope should fall into heresy. And it was a real and present danger. I mean, we'd seen uh, at that time uh, a large number of Catholic bishops who had fallen into uh, the Protestant heresies, right? And so what happens if the pope becomes a Lutheran, right? And this, is, this was the, the hypothetical situation that Bellarmine was dealing with in, in, his, uh, in his book. And his theological opinion, I mean, it carries a certain weight. He's, he's a a saint and a doctor. Uh, and we'll talk about what he deemed the appropriate response uh, in a minute. But the problem is that, uh, like I say, one of his uh, assertions was 
that if a pope becomes a manifest heretic, he stops being Catholic, therefore he's no longer the pope. And that seems very logical. But the problem is this. Canon law tells us that a Catholic who falls into manifest heresy, okay, if you come out and say, I don't believe in the Trinity, okay, that's a manifest heresy. Or if you say, I think there's, I think the Blessed Virgin Mary is really the fourth person of the Trinity, and it's really a quadrinity, right? Something that's it's clearly not a part of the deposit of faith and, and is, is a contradiction to Catholic teaching. You become a manifest heretic. You lose, you know, you, you stop being Catholic and you would lose your office, uh, any office you held in the church without any declarative, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, say you would lose your authority without any declarative, declarative sentence, without anything. Canon law says it's late sentia, you excommunicate yourself when you become a manifest heretic. However, canon law goes on to state that a bishop, a prelate, and the Pope, of course, is a bishop, does not lose his office unless, you know, it cannot be removed from his office without um, the due process, without being removed from his office by a superior. And this is an issue because no one is superior to the Pope. Right? We already gave us Canon 1440, you know, uh, the Pope is supreme. There, there's no recourse to his decisions and his decrees. All right. So nobody can remove the Pope from office, whether he becomes, even if he becomes a heretic. So Bellarmine, he says his opinion is if a Pope should become a heretic, and he didn't believe it really possible, but he said in that in that situation, he says, just as it is licit to resist the pontiff that aggresses the body, it is also licit to resist the one who aggresses the soul or who disturbs civil order or above all who attempts to destroy the church. I say that it is licit to resist him by not doing what he orders and preventing his will from being executed. However, it is not licit to judge, punish, or depose him, since these are acts proper to a superior. You see, I, I point this out to you because that's the very same doctor of the church, you know, who proposed that hypothesis that a manifestly heretic pope would lose his office, actually teaches that it's forbidden to judge or punish or depose even if the Pope is trying to destroy the church. In other words, Bellarmine cannot um, um, reasonably be used as a justification for sedificantism. His conclusions were consistent with, with Augustine and Aquinas, who warned that, that, that a Pope can in fact be a heretic, but that it's unlawful to judge him. That's canon 1404. The first C is judged by no one. You know, and instead of a cantism, I think it's it's kind of the the flip side of the ultramontanism that affects so many modern conservative Catholics. You know, historically, ultramontanism, from which means from beyond the mountains, is a strong emphasis on papal authority and centralization of the church. Uh, and today, you know, our kind of ultramontane Novus Ordo apologists have spent fifty years concocting theories of rabbinic complexity in an effort to square the circle of post-conciliar papal novelties so that they can be with the Pope and avoid the uncomfortable position of opposing or even criticizing the Supreme Pontiff. Set of Acantists take the opposite road by declaring the logical fallacy that, that no real Pope would ever fall into perceived errors in the first place. Now, I think it's reasonable to avoid both those extremes and side with the teaching of Scripture and canon law and the consensus of the fathers and doctors and theologians of the Church that the Pope can err, 
even in matters of faith and morals, and that it's legitimate to resist him, but not to judge him for the reasons that, that we've already talked about. <clears throat> and there have been historical precedents. Uh, Pope Honorius was condemned by the Third Council of Constantinople back in the seventh century. But it's important to point out that that condemnation was made by an ecumenical council and some 42 years after his death, okay? That's hardly analogous to individual Catholics presuming to judge a reigning pontiff, right? The, the, the condemnation of, of Honorius was highly controversial for 12 centuries. And some theologians conjectured that the, that the council had been falsified. Others said that, uh, that while Honorius was guilty of failing con to condemn the monothelite heresy in his famous letter to Sergius, which was the point of contention, uh, while he didn't condemn the monothelite heresy, he didn't embrace it, so he wasn't really a heretic. Um, you know, the, the Bellarmine had a theory that was rediscovered and popularized at the time of the First Vatican Council that concluded that Norius was, in fact, anathematized by Constantinople III as a heretic in the strict sense, but that the council fell into error, <laughs> that they were the ones that made the mistake. And when Pope Leo confirmed the council, he expressly abrogated the censure of Honorius and substituted a condemnation for negligence only. All right, and with that in mind, when we come back, I'd like to talk about another example that hardly anybody ever brings up, and that is of Pope Formosus and the Cadaver Synod. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Yeah, we're talking about Set of Vacantism, and I was talking about uh, the condemnation of Pope Honorius by uh, the Third Council of Constantinople, his uh, letter to Sergius, which failed to condemn the monothelite heresy. And uh, the, the interesting thing is that that brings up, I think, pertains directly to the Set of Vacantist argument, namely that the decisions of an ecumenical council are not binding apart from papal approval. So unless you hold to the Gallican or conciliarist heresy, you know that an ecumenical council cannot on its own authority judge, punish, or depose the Pope. So that's also not a recourse, okay? Uh, in any event, the debate over Honorius happened 42 years after he died and, and raged for another 12 centuries until Vatican I uh, finally laid down the conditions for ex-catheter judgment that uh, made it impossible to construe uh, what Honorius did is a formal heresy. And I mentioned before the break that another case that hardly anybody brings up is the Synodus Horrenda, the so-called Cadaver Synod. See, that's the name that is commonly given to the ecclesiastical trial of Pope Formosus in the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome uh, back in January of the year 1890, or 8, rather, 97. So in the ninth century. And the reason it's called the Cadaver Synod is at the time of the trial, Formosus had been dead for about seven months. The trial was conducted by Pope Stephen VI, who was successor to uh, Formosus's successor, Boniface VI. So it was Formosus and then Boniface and then Stephen. And Stephen had Formosus's corpse exhumed, formally vested, brought to the papal court, set up in a throne for judgment. Now, among other things, he accused Formosus of perjury 
and having acceded to the papacy illegally, which is the very charge being made against uh, Pope Francis. And at the end of the trial, Formosus was pronounced guilty. His body was broken up and thrown into the Tiber, and his entire papacy was retroactively declared null and void. Okay, So there are precedents, but not of judging a reigning pontiff. That is the one thing you cannot do. You know, and finally, in all sincerity, I'm acquainted with a number of folks who hold a set of Acantus position, and they are, in my experience, by and large, decent people, uh, really in, in good Catholics whose hearts are in the right place, but they're just in error. Uh, some of those hold to the Beneficantism position. There are my friends and colleagues whose opinions I generally uh, respect. And further, I share their frustration over the, the post-Vatican II papal novelties in general and, and those of Pope Francis in particular. You, you know that if you listen to this program. And I also understand that it's emotionally comforting to, to try and resolve that cognitive dissonance that's occasioned by trying to, to reconcile a pope's perceived errors on the one hand with the obedience and respect that Catholics owe to the papacy on the other hand. And to do that by simply embracing the idea that the post-conciliar popes aren't really true popes at all. Or, or that Francis isn't really pope because Benedict XVI never really resigned. Right? That's a happy place to go. But, you know, it's not, it doesn't reflect reality. But, but I think it might uh, explain why the Benedictists and the Sedevacantists care so much about their theories. You know, I, I think it's akin to people fighting about which sports team is best. That the reason that they are willing to fight so long, to argue so passionately, is precisely because the stakes are so low. See, the point is, you can't prove the theories of Benevacantism or Sedevacantism. And no matter how compelling a case you make, no matter how complicated a tapestry you weave, even if you're right, it will have no practical effect. If the Benedictists are right, the Sedevacantists are right, Francis will still be on the chair of Peter. He will continue to reign as Pope until he either dies or resigns. And what's important to remember, and, and this is the crux of, of what I, this is really what I wanted to say to you. All of this has really kind of been built up to this one thing. We must remember that nothing is happening in the church or in the world without God's knowledge and permissive will. We're Catholics. We have the Catholic faith, we say. We need to trust in his providence. I think uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien gave a powerful example of God's providence in The Lord of the Rings. Where, where you have Frodo the Hobbit carrying the one ring up Mount Doom as, as a figure of Christ carrying the cross up Calvary. But Frodo is not Christ. At the climactic moment, when Frodo is standing at the very precipice of the fires of Mount Doom, ready to cast in the ring and destroy it, he hesitates. And Sam says, what are you doing? And he tells him, I'm not going to do what I set out to do. And instead of throwing the ring into the fire, he puts it on instead. And everything that they worked so hard for and that they suffered so much for and that, you know, you as a reader have spent, you know, more than a thousand of pages uh, uh, sharing with them. All that work, all that suffering is lost in that moment. 
except that at that very moment, Gollum shows up and bites the ring off of Frodo's finger. And finally, having regained his precious, he dances, dances in wicked joy and falls into the fires of Mount Doom, which destroys the ring and snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And the point that Tolkien is making, I believe, it was only the fact that those who could have killed Gollum, Bilbo, Frodo, Boromir, at the end, even Sam, it was only the fact that they showed him mercy instead that enabled Gollum to become the instrument of providence when even Frodo had turned from his purpose. And so it is in, in life. We, the Catholic faithful, people who are traditional Catholics, no-nonsense Catholics, like I always say, traditional Catholic doesn't mean what mass you go to. It means that you can say the act of faith and mean it. If you are sincerely Catholic, if you hold that faith, you need to trust in divine providence. Who knows what part Francis or his papal policies that we find so offensive or, or his resistance, our resistance to those policies, who knows what part that all might have to play in the grand scheme of things. You know, like Gandalf told Frodo, we shouldn't be too quick to hand out judgment because even the wise cannot see all ends. And that's what St. Paul's talking about in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the convictions about things that cannot be seen. I sincerely hope that those who hold the Benedictist and Sedevacantist position will find the strength to resign themselves to the current situation, to recognize that Francis is the Pope, and to join with all faithful Catholics who dearly love Christ and his church to pray that God's will be done, and pray also for our, if you will, wayward pontiff. He can certainly use our prayers, and that's no nonsense. And he may be benefiting from them. I consider the, the just the other day this reversal of policy concerning the fraternity of Saint Peter. Right, despite all the draconian measures against the traditional mass that were made in Traditionis Custodes and then the response at Dubia, Pope Francis has almost ex inexplicably, inexplicably, <laughs> say that three times fast. He has almost inexplicably decreed, quote, from this time forward, as from the founding of the FSSP in 1988, the priestly members of this institute have the faculty to celebrate the sacrifice of the mass and to carry out the sacraments and other sacred rites, as well as to fulfill the divine office according to the typical editions of the liturgical books, namely the Missal, the Ritual, the Pontifical, and the Roman Breviary, in force in the year 1962. I read a good article about this by Dr. Joseph Shaw, he's a PhD, and he said the, the implications are momentous. He says, quote, if the FSSP and by implication the other traditional institutes and community has the right to carry out the sacraments using the Roman ritual and the pontifical, they will need the cooperation of bishops who are by that very fact authorized to render this cooperation. You know, he goes on to say, as, as I've been trying to point out, Benedict XVI won't live forever. Pope Francis won't live forever. You know, his pontificate will end when he either dies or resigns. 
and and but the papacy will go on. And what Dr. Shaw says is while the current pontificate continues, he said, we must all make the most of the situation that we find ourselves in. Keep calm, pray for the Pope, and make a good Lent. The most valuable contribution we can make right now is a spiritual one. And our most powerful advocate is in heaven. And amen to that. Our Lady of America, pray for us. At the end of the day, it is our faithfulness, our prayerfulness, our uh, fidelity to Christ and to the teachings of his church that is going to win the day. I have read the end of the book, folks, and we win it. Okay. So like St. Pio said, pray, hope, and don't worry. Jesus said, don't worry, don't be anxious, do not fear, as they say some 365 times in the Holy Bible. It's Jesus and, and elsewhere in the Bible, that 365 times those words that our Lord himself addressed to us, not to be anxious about things, not to be worried about things, not to be afraid. That sentiment is repeated once for every day in the year in the Holy Scripture. There's clearly a theme here, and there isn't any good reason to get caught up in these things. I'll leave you with a, a, a little chunk of wisdom from Thomas Akempis. He says that, you know, when you read, and that would include social media and all the rest of it, he said, read things that are going to bring you to contrition, not merely give you distraction. And that's the thing. These things that we read on the internet, they distract us from what's really important. And that is that we pray and hope and not worry. Hey, I want to thank you for being with us next week on, on the program. We're going to be talking, um, I hope, I wanted, I wanted to talk actually this week, and this I kind of got sidetracked, about devotion to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, uh, the month of February is almost over, and it is devoted to our passion. And as Thomas Akempis says, if you can't be devoted to the Godhead, <clears throat> you can be devoted to his passion. That is something that we are all of us capable of. And so I'm going to talk about some some practical ways to be devoted to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and to bring us closer to him and to his holy church. And uh, by the way, until next time, I want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for those of you who are supporting us. You know, if if you want to uh, help keep these podcasts going, keep us on the radio as well. Uh, Go to vmpr.org, click on donate, and uh, you can set yourself up as a monthly donor or uh, make a one-time donation. We do appreciate it. And that money goes to keeping us uh, on the air. Until then, thank you so much. May God richly bless you and your family.